This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. party people welcome to another edition of stark reality with your host myself jim deer aka small change this time around uh i invited my friend colleen vincent to share some thoughts and music for you she's born and raised in brooklyn so we end up talking a lot about brooklyn back in the day sort of predating uh, my time moving here in the 80s and 90s and classic spots like Sapphire Lounge, where Colleen did a regular party for a while. She's a hip-hop head and also drama bass head and just, you know, people. Good people. So we end up talking about promoting parties, community. Kind of get into how black people get treated with healthcare. And how poor people and minorities have just been considered uh, expendable throughout history. Nice, fun subjects. But... It's a nice, well-rounded discussion. Goes for about an hour, and then Colleen uh, is shared with us uh, a nice New York-themed hip-hop playlist that will follow afterwards. So, Colleen Vincent here on Stark Reality. And by the way, this was recorded in late April. So, just for timing context, enjoy. I've been doing, I did a webinar on mental health resources, and I also wrote some things about mental health resources. Um, and so uh, I was asked to, um, they, I was interviewed about that. I just realized that I don't drink, and the publication that I talk to is an alcohol-focused um, magazine, uh, which makes it really funny. Um, but I did tell them, like, one of the questions was, how do you um, how do you know how do you monitor like your drinking um, the warning signs and blah 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 like how do you not develop a problem during the pandemic and I explained I said you know here's the thing I said wine purchases have gone up fifty five you know alcohol purchases have gone up fifty five percent since this thing got started right which you know, as I spoke to several people, they were like, well, you know, the bars are closed, blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, but when you went to the bar or to the club, the price point might be one of your social boundaries. Ah, um, that's a good point. That, yeah, the fact that you were mingling with people might be a social boundary. The fact that you were eating with it um, might be a social boundary. Um, and I said, you know, I said to her, I said, when you get to the point, thank goodness I didn't, I didn't ups, up, offend the alcohol people. I said, I said, when you get to the point where you're preoccupied, then something is wrong because normal people don't have to count their drinks. They don't have to, they're not going to be worried about their alcohol consumption. So it's a warning sign that something isn't right and something needs to be addressed. Um, and also let her know, I said, if you find that like 
you know, used to drink to like unwind. And that's one thing, you know, having like a couple glasses of unwind or whatever. Cause I said, I can't tell you if having a drink a day is bad or if having a couple of drinks a week is bad. Cause there, there was, an, an, at least in my life, I've never had a point where I drank every single day. Um, right, even right. though I would definitively say that I have um, addiction problems. Um, I said, but it is that if it's something that you're using to cope with life, then that is a warning sign like that, you know, that means that maybe you need to regroup. Slow down a little bit. Yeah. So I said, you know, there's different ways, but you know, I'm not going to tell somebody how much they have to drink, but if you find that as soon as you like finish a case or a bottle of something, you need to go get another one just to be sure. Right. Something is not right. 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 If it becomes a little bit more than a, than a crutch per se, yeah. or, or it does become a crutch, I should say, like yes. sort of like a function of having to, to get through the day. Yes. So, you know, we were just talking about overall, we were talking about like, um, well here, before how... we get into it, cause I, 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 I don't, yeah, let's not double retread, but, uh, here we are, uh, another episode of Stark Reality with, uh, my friend Colleen Vincent. How are you? I'm fine. I'm great. How are you? Good, good. Uh, hanging in here, uh, as in case people don't know, we are, uh, taping this in the middle of April, in the middle of the, uh, Corona epidemic, just to give some, uh, timeline of, you know, how it's going to affect our conversation though. Uh, we've been, we've known each other for a while, right? I feel like I probably saw you at Concrete Jungle, uh, a party in New York, uh, back in the day. Yeah, it's probably, I mean, it's probably... Extremely likely. Um, did you so, grow up in New York, or? Yes, yes, I did. So I've lived here since the seventies. Um, so since I was under one, um, and uh, I've lived in various neighborhoods. But my um, the neighborhood I claim is Flatbush, Brooklyn. Um, so the heart of the Caribbean community um, here. So you and, didn't uh, you didn't just move here with your friends from Boise, Idaho nope, to form an nope. indie rock band? No, I am a New, <laughs> I am a New Yorker through and through. Um, despite sometimes my slightly posh way of speaking, um, you know, I'm 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 definitely a New Yorker, badass. There you go. I have family <laughs> in the Bronx too, you know. So so <laughs> so yes, I am very much a New Yorker and. Um, and, and while I've been fortunate enough to travel um, to different places and, you know, I lived in Philadelphia for a little while because of school, um, New York is and remains my home. Remains yes. My home. And in fact, yeah. uh, your your uh, playlist that you are, gave us for uh, the podcast is mm-hmm. kind of centered around New York, right? Like New York hip hop, essentially. Yeah. So so it's I mean, there are other there are rappers there from other East Coast cities, but um, you know the feeling that you get listening to that is very much um, New York and very specifically Brooklyn-based. Um, I think it's kind of funny that we have like people like Guru, who's from Boston. That's right. He's, people were pointing that out because <laughs> I think we just passed his ten-year anniversaries of his death. And yeah, yes, I, I forgot yes. he was from Boston. That's right. Yes, um, Roxbury. To be exact, and uh, and you have Premier, who's from Houston, but these That's people, right. yeah, these people created what you know is an iconic New York sound, and dare I say, Brooklyn sound, 
Um, and and although I know the Bronx will get upset at me saying this, <laughs> peace to the Bronx, you know, peace out to Queens. You know, I just, there was a kind of a feeling in Brooklyn um, in those years, particularly late 80s going into the mid-90s that I felt was very captured by some of those tunes that I put on the playlist, mostly because, like, you know, the songs, if you listen to the words, they're all, they're all pretty much homage to the neighborhoods and the people that lived in the neighborhoods and the things um, that you would see in the neighborhoods. You know, there's a lot of storytellers in there. And some of the stories are grim. Um, some of them are honorific. Um, but they all represent um, a sense of pride, but also the, kind of the hypervigilance of the era. Um, you know, growing up uh, in New York in the 80s and 90s, people on the outside and probably the news would tell you to be scared. Right. You know, gold chains were getting snatched. When I was growing up, if you, you know, door knocker earrings were getting snatched, you know, people had to get like stitches for their earlobes. That is not an urban myth. Um, you know, people's like Raiders jackets and uh, Columbia jackets and, and uh, sheepskins were getting snatched. Um, you know, it wasn't, I don't want to say a lawless time, but, you know, there's, there's a feeling that kind of came out of the 70s and into the 80s and, of, you know, it's the crack era of uh, kind of a slight sense of the wild, wild west. Right. Um, but when you hear these, like, the smoothness, first of all, of these beats, right, um, and, like, the clarity of people's speech, you know, people had this idea that, you know, it was a bunch of, like, hooligans running around when it was just, you know, people who had deep thoughts and, and poets and creatives um, whose voices were very much an instrument. And that, you know, Black culture has been, had that kind of musical aesthetic and sensibility for a very long time that the voice is very much an instrument. Um, and so when you listen to that music, if you're from New York, and especially if you're from Brooklyn, but if you're from New York, you know, these kinds of songs like bring a tear to your eyes. You right, know? right. I and, mean, people on the outside kind of listen to it like, like they're like, ooh, Brooklyn's scary. And the people from here are like, no, this is this is the sense of what it was like um, then. You know, there was always possibility and like your hood, you repped your hood, you know? Right, um, right. That is something that I feel like kind of gets lost a little bit that you do hear in a lot of those those songs, especially even going back into the early 80s is it really was about people's, you know, hoods where they're from, you know, that it made a much bigger difference. Whereas like now it's probably to the point of like, well, what neighborhood can I afford? It's not right. necessarily, you know, again, like, uh, yeah, I think that the, the, it was a little more of a microcosm in, in these it different was. neighborhoods and, you know, almost, you know, not too much like obviously like the warriors movie, but it was like going to different hoods. It's just, you know, again, it was before yeah. my time. I moved here in 93, but just talking to people like yourself and, you know, kind of getting that sense, you know. Yeah, and, and the thing is, like, you know, where's, like, maybe more in, like, the club scene, um, you know, there was, like, the, well, you know, you're from New Jersey and I'm from New York and you're Bridge and Tunnel. It wasn't, it, we didn't have the same... We didn't think the same way, 
And let's put it that way. Like, you know, New Jersey hip hop artists were very much a part of this scene. You know, I've included um, Queen Latifah because even though her career has evolved by leaps and bounds, um, you know, she was very much a part of all of this. Well, that's um, like uh, East Orange, right? That whole like yes. naughty, naughty by nature and all that stuff. Yes. Flavor yes. unit, I guess, right? <laughs> Flavor unit. So I had several of her albums and, um, you know, this particular song, which um, contains a sample that is a more recent sample by hip hop standards, meaning like most of the sample, many of the samples that were used were, you know, you're going to go back at least 10 years, maybe 15 years, maybe even 20 years um, of where the samples came from. So that sample is from a song that came out in 1985 um, called Making Love in the Rain by Herb Alpert, which also features a, uh, Janet Jackson, um, and they just looped pretty much kind of the opening of that song, and the way that it sounds. There's a there's something about a lot of East Coast hip hop, and and people go back and forth about this, but they you know people say something about East Coast hip hop like evokes like winter time, um, and if you watch a lot of the videos, you'll see people are wearing like you know big coats and Timberlands and. Was it some puffy jacket, like North Face? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Exactly. And so that particular song, to me, has a very, like, um, kind of winter-esque coldness to it. Um, But then you listen to, like, you know, she's, she's, like, um, doo-wopping over it. and, And, like, you know, she's, like, the warmth of her sound counters to that kind of, like, coldness um where she's talking about the place where i live um and she's basically doing you know the same thing if you look at like mr rogers neighborhood and he comes in and he's like and i see blah blah and i see blah blah and i see a train and i see you know stuff like that right right that's kind of what's happening in that song you know but but Um, also obviously having a different perspective and even what you were talking about you know the kind of concept like you know, in the media per se, oh, you're, you know, you're supposed to be afraid in New York. And it just sort right. of like, it sort of dumbs it down and makes it very linear. And what I think is, you know, what you were talking about before when there's poets and people kind of telling their stories is, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're you not given like a real sensibility of who these, you know, who people are. It's just like right. people like black people just get flattened to be, okay, you're just right. dumb and you're a criminal. And so I feel like, you know, that's maybe the concept of like when you're talking about the emotion, bringing a tear to your mm-hmm. eye, because it's you're you're seeing that there is so much more and it's yep. proven in the art, you know, but yep. it's still coming from a certain perspective. You know, it's not necessarily coming from this kind of like white framework, per se. Right. You know? I mean, the the producers were black and the and the and the and the rappers were black, too, and the culture um although the culture was multicultural from the beginning, um, because, you know, our Latinx brothers and sisters were right there with us. Um, you know, they were white artists from the beginning also. And, and I always tell people, I said, you know, when I was growing up, we heard everything on the radio. You know, when I was growing up, you heard, you, you, I mean, there's always been top 40, right? But when you listen to... Um, like Hot 97 or Kiss FM or even Z100, like in the 
early 90s, late 80s, we heard everything. So we heard, you know, you heard like standard, like top 40 music, which was great. You heard um, hip hop, it started bubbling to the mainstream, even though MTV didn't pay us any mind for a long time. That's true. Um, That's actually a very good point. I mean, MTV was was racist as fuck. I mean, MTV didn't even air any black videos back in the day. Right. And then yep. I think it was Michael Jackson or someone Michael that Jackson finally broke it out. through. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but, they, but they still were then also very lacking on, uh, on hip hop, you know, obviously like yo MTV raps came around later, but again, in the beginning, they, they weren't playing any hip hop videos for a long time. Yeah. So we had video music box, right? Video music very, box. Yeah. Very local channel, very local channel. Um, and when I say we all watched it, I mean, everybody watched Video Music Box. Um, and also at the same time that was going on, you know, house music was playing on the radio late at night, too. That's true. You know, Even Hot 97 music. used to bump yes. hot by house music. Exactly. Yep. yep. They had all, I mean, they, you could hear everything, you know, um, and not everything was like pack, prepackaged for popular consumption but you know we were all listening to these very profound um tunes you know um and it was inspiring a lot of people other people then eventually came out later but it was just the way it was um and so the songs that i picked are very much about the way it was and like the different types of people that contributed to the way it was um i if i had an opportunity to make it longer um, I certainly would have put more uh, female artists on it, um, but the music that I picked um, was all, you know, very clear storytelling, kind of in a not perfectly linear fashion, but, you know, kind of in a, a fashion of um, like, you know, earlier artists to later artists, um, but all of them tell a story um, and all of the beats kind of paint a picture of a time and i'm not necessarily well no maybe i am a little bit of an old fart when i listen to <laughs> when i listen to music that's packaged for popular consumption right now especially you know this this newer form which i do not consider hip-hop culture um because hip-hop culture was kind of a pastiche of um you know of, of it's a lot of diy right and that's not really what's happening today. Um, so when I look at this, the packaging now, um, and evolution happens, and in my mind, some devolution has happened too. Like we sacrifice um, the, some of the storytelling for the beat being hot, which I'm all about hot beats. I mean, you know, I really love dance music, um, and I, you know, I love songs that are like change up and they challenge and so on and so forth but i don't feel the same sense of time and place right. uh, with some of the music that we have now and i also don't feel the distinction of artists i mean i feel like previously you know you knew that this was this person and this was this person and this person like they all had different styles um they all had different flows and i'm certainly yes there are artists out there that are still doing the thing but the difference was then um was that all of these artists were accessible to everyone um everybody had the radio first of all that's how they were accessible but also like they were mixtape places everywhere 
Um, and they sometimes, you know, were selling their mixtapes. Um, and it was that kind of investment, um, community investment in music that was happening here. Um, and it was just a lot more, you know, physically accessible because I went to school in downtown Brooklyn and we had Beach Street. Right. Um, Another classic, a, classic uh, yeah. store. Definitely. Yeah. Beach Street for sure. So I think that it, it is a cookies now. I'm not quite sure. Um, but I used to go there every week and I am not, you know, I would not consider myself a crate digger, but I had a lot of records, like a lot of records and a lot of mixtapes. Like that was just the way it was. Um, and, you know, I, I think. In well, I think present- people like, you know, uh, like Doo-Wop, Tony Touch, there was a whole like series uh, of people that touch. that kind of came came up kind of through mixtapes you know yeah just putting um, out tons yeah. and tons and tons of mixtapes you know yep kid capri like, i think too kid capri for sure um and here's the thing you know i don't know if you remember the tower records that was um in soho but not really in soho well like on ha- like houses. uh on lafayette on, you mean yes so there was that Tower Records, and like next to it, or somewhere near on that block, there was also a little flea market, quote unquote, um, that had a guy who, well, a couple guys who had like mad mixtapes. Well, there was a place mad that mixtapes. was on like St. Mark's and Third. It was like a little hole in the wall store. Right. I remember that well, was just all mixtapes as well. Yeah. So I would, you know, I would get those, and and that's how. You know, I started listening to other forms of music. So, like, um, when I was a kid, you know, you play around with the radio enough, you get the college radio stations. Um, and sometimes you might even get, like, Korean pirate radio. And we still have... Yes, have quite a bit of that, on. I think, in Flatbush and in that area yeah. in Brooklyn. You still... I still tune in and you still catch a lot of reggae stations mostly. Yeah. You know, so we play around like that. So playing around like that is how I got introduced to jungle, which eventually turned into drum and bass. Um, And it seemed like a perfectly natural progression um, from what I was listening to already. And um, so it was like, I don't remember who, I don't remember what the station is, but I believe David Levy was the, um, was the DJ. And, uh, you know, it was M Beats Incredible. Right, and, right. The classic, yeah. <laughs> like, one of the early kind of breakout jungle tracks from, like, what was right. that, like, 93 or 94, somewhere around then. Yeah. And so um, when I heard that, you know, I, I started talking to some of my, you know, my high school friends with it. And I had a friend who is, she is Ghanaian and she had family in England. So when she went there for the summer, she brought a bunch of it back for me. Oh, she nice. said, this is that crazy music. She That's said, they do love crazy music. So she brought yeah. this back for me, and it kind of just expanded, like... Um, yeah, I kind of got into jungle was. through hip-hop, too, because I was kind of less into dance music. I was more of, like, a, you know, like a funk and soul head that was also into hip-hop, mm-hmm. and then kind of hearing some of those kind of samples, because I was less in that, say, house and techno, but I sort of gravitated to jungle through that kind of reggae hip-hop samples right and so I think, that was like know, one of the more you know i kind of got into jungle through i got into sort of electronic music through jungle actually like i love house and techno now but back then i was 
a little bit more of a purist, and I'm like, ah, this stuff's kind of boring, but <laughs> the jungle was great. But yeah, so I would end up going to, yeah, Concrete Jungle back in the day, too, was just, that's another way that sometimes right. you can get into these subgenres if you just go to a really good party and just hear yeah. all these great DJs killing it, and you're like, all right, you know, again, it's something even beyond the radio or whatever. It's just, you know, it's an experience. Yeah, you know? it's kind of, it, it extends the, it extends the experience, you know, for, for, um, for me, I was already, like, house music was already par for the chords for me, um, particularly because some, like, some artists, like Queen Latifah um, and um, the Jungle Brothers, they were already doing you know, I yeah, that sort of subgenre, hip house, house yeah. hip house. Yes. So that was um, that was, you know, all very familiar to me. And plus, my parents came here in the 70s. So, you know, they had a lot of particularly my dad, like a lot of um, that, like proto house stuff. Um, and again, because we could listen to everything, you know, I was already listening to like new wave and post punk. Um, but, you know, my I very much settled um, into hip hop because that was um easier for me to buy and get a whole bunch of and easier for me to get like mixtapes of. Right, right. Um, and also because very from the very, very early, um, there were like, um, and I can't, there was a, it was called a genre that I cannot remember. So I'm just going to call it hip hop drum and bass. Um, people were already making tunes like that. Uh, and so, you know, I had one, one tape that I wore the hell out of it. Um, <laughs> I did, you know, and it was using hip hop um, loops and samples over like um, sped up breaks. And so, you know, that it all seemed perfectly a perfectly natural progression. And at the same time, I was collecting a lot of dance hall music, um, you know, because if any Caribbean party that you went to when you were young, um, that's what you were going to hear, you know. And then, of course, in the house and when I would go to visit family um, in Grenada, You'd hear Soka and Calypso, but really in Brooklyn, like dance hall. Dance ruled. hall, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you, th yeah. you uh, eventually got to the point of throwing some parties, right? Yes, I did. Um, so when I got, uh, so my father is uh, has was throwing parties like from way back. Like, oh wow, that's amazing! Of, yeah, he brought a lot of um, he brought a lot of um, Calypsonians here for um, the first time, and he did. Um, he did a lot of event production work um, and put together floats for the West Indian Day Parade. Oh, amazing. So, yeah. So, um, so I, you know, I have that kind of a creative heritage and um, I certainly went to a lot of parties. Um, but when I got back here from college, I mean, I was still coming up in between, you know, semesters and so forth. When I got up back up here from college and kind of had this, like transformative experience, if you want to call it that. I went to Creamfields. <laughs> I went to Creamfields and like my life kind of changed. Um, and when I came back, I was like, you know, I want to like, I want to give back to my city. And this was the best way that I could think of. Um, now I made my daytime living um, off of like events and PR and marketing. Um, but then I, so, I, but I wanted to, I wanted to see parties that I would go to. Um, and so That's I the gist actually, of throwing parties is okay. I, I want to, <laughs> I want to create 
the party that I would go to. There you go. Yeah. Just like even with DJing, I want to play the music that I'd want to hear out, basically. Yes. So what happened was, you know, I linked up first um, with Ruben Araneta, and then he introduced me to Joey Casanova, who was already, you know, already known for throwing like hip hop parties. And I said, you know, I really want to throw uh, like a jungle party. Um, and so, you know, I linked up with some people, including um, Golden Child. Um, I don't know if you, you know, um, Mr. Magno, but, you know, I said I wanted to throw this party and, and I called it Screwface. And it was going to be all jungle. Um, and it was at the Blood Bucket on East Broadway. Um, that's the nickname of the place. I think it was 169 East Broadway. But nobody came. Uh, I tried and tried. Nobody came. I don't know. It's if it tricky. Throwing, throwing parties yeah. is not easy, you know? No, it's not. It's not easy. It's and not so, easy. There's always a million things going on in New York. So then you have to kind of convince people to come to your party beyond just, right. you know, there's plenty of great parties that there might not be that many people where the music is amazing, but there's. You know, that's the thing. There's a lot of factors in throwing a party. It's it's more than just, okay, I got yeah. all this great music. It's going to be fun. But then you still have to have, how do you drag people there? You got to have the location. You got to have the personalities and also the luck. Right. 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 Sometimes um, it is a timing thing for sure. Yeah. So then, um, you know, we kind of moved the party um, to what was known as Sapphire Lounge. I think it's called something different now. But it, Sapphire um, was one of those places that was around for many, many, even before yes. there was a lot of things going on in the East yes. Village, Lower East Side. I remember when I first moved here, that was one of the few places that you saw DJs and can go dancing. Yes. Bef it was, before I mean, there was even a lot of DJs in the East Village, you know. Yeah, and and uh, the owner, Jahan, was very, like, welcoming of different things. Um He's a cool dude, you know. Um, Sapphire is a classic New York place, in my yes, opinion. Yes, it is. It really I met, was. I'm pretty much everybody that I know, um, any quote-unquote scene folks that I know, um, you know, if we didn't meet at Sapphire, then we, like, hung out at Sapphire eventually. Like, that's how that's how iconic it is and was and, and how special it is to me. Um, and so, you know... The party that I started doing there was called Piracy. Um, and we had a cool flyer that was designed by um, Bill Darby um, that kind of had like the transistor um, like signal on it. Right, um, right. And it was going to be like the smoother side of drum and bass. Um, so like the Brazilian style that wasn't that popular then but was getting attention. Um, so, is that about like DJ you know, Markey and stuff like that? Yeah. So it's going to be, you know, in a jazzier style. Right, right. Um, but, again, that's not what the people wanted. You know what I mean? I mean, even though I was going to camouflage and I was going to concrete jungle, like, that's, you know, it still wasn't what the people wanted. So, eventually, Joey and I transformed it into Party Right, which became successful. Um, a lot of people passed through there, um, you know, and... A lot of like turntablists came through there. Um, yeah, I saw on some of your flyers that so you had like Catch, who I know was playing a camouflage sometimes. Yeah. And also kind of cutting it up and 
Fat Fingers, who I guess is sort of a, a more known hip hop DJ now. Yeah, and uh, Cutting Candy came through once. Oh, Cutting like Candy, we, nice. Yeah, so it was not, you know, it was not a, it was not a lightweight party. You know, it was a place that people wanted to be. You know, and and of course, you know, we would go to Mondays. Um, I don't know if you remember Mondays there, uh, which was on Monday, which was the house music party. Right. Um, and so that kind of became like the spot, you know, for a while. It became like the spot for a while. Um, and then eventually, you know, the fact that I had to keep a day job um, after a couple of years, you know, I, I didn't stay on. Um, but, you know, I'm really grateful for that experience because, you know, I, I before I leave this life, I always want to know that I contribute um, something better particularly about you know the place i'm from and you know i think that i did in that regard um you know just added something else um to the history and culture of new york and i'm sorry for that beeping um oh no don't be silly okay uh so you know i'm happy for for um that aspect because i just have always had a strong sense of like a place um, of pride in place, um, and certainly of like what makes New York New York are the culture of the people, right? You know, um, and, and in, no, go ahead. Sorry, I, and like I don't feel like this transformation that we've gone through, um, which is kind of the evolution, a natural evolution when you consider. Um, how people are disenfranchised and then, you know, property is purchased and uh, at a, at a discounted rate and then um, given back at a, you know, offered at a premium. Um, and You're talking about this, not just this current thing, but just the general evolution yeah. of New York to where we're at now. Yeah. In terms of and, gentrification and just the affordability right. of it. Right. And it become, it became, kind of a commercialization of that creativity, if you want to put it that way. Um, you know, it's like, let's attract all these quote unquote creatives um, who not, but not people who sprung up necessarily um, around here, like people who are looking to reinvent themselves as somebody hip and cool. And, and I will tell you, like just living here in New York, in the five boroughs, like, if we were hip and cool, which I hate the word hip, but that's the best way to describe it, it was because we just were. It wasn't, you know, it's it's not something you acquire like a patina on a copper plate, you know, like it's, it's just that we were. And it was kind of because people just did what they, they well, the I think, to do certain things. Yeah, you know? I mean, like I, just... I think there's like an aspect where, and it's almost like, you know, it's that sort of joke that CBGB's has become a John Varvato's store yeah, with really Jesus. expensive suits. It's that you, you take like, you know, and, and, you know, when all that stuff was was happening, New York was a different place and it was maybe right. a bit more dangerous and a bit more raw or more than a bit. And then mm -hmm. it's almost like as time goes on, it's like people kind of capitalize on that to almost sell it like, well, you know now you can go to where CBGB's was and it, yeah, it's, it's a little bit warped in a, in a right. way, you know, because it's, it becomes like, Hey, we're in New York and we're so cool. But would that kind of culture come out in 
the modern day New York now. Like not to right. say that poverty is cool or oppression is cool, but you know, there is kind of like, yeah, there was kind of like a rawness to New York that kind of, that's part of the reason all this stuff kind of came out of it. And then you almost have people that kind of roll in that are kind of be like, okay, now I want to claim that I'm yeah, a part I of this, acquire, you know, I which especially if you're from here, I mean, you know, like I said, I'm not, I moved here, like I said, in the early nineties and I think you've been here long. No, I'm just saying though, it's just kind of funny when, you know, again, you like that joke that I was making at the beginning that, you know, are you're, you know, we're from X, Y, Z place, but we're all going to move to Brooklyn to say that we're from Brooklyn to get a record right. deal. You and know, then we're gonna and then that's, like, that's almost like, make, yeah, I don't yeah, know. I don't feel songs. like those, all those hip hop people are going to be like, you know, like guru, like, yeah, we're going to move to New York and say we're from New York. I don't know. Right. You know. I mean, even when we made, I mean, we made songs that were odes to Brooklyn, but we weren't like making like cute C spellings or, you know, tattooing it on ourselves or, you know, it just, we weren't doing that. We weren't, our gold chains did not say Brooklyn on them. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. That's not what we were doing. We were just, we were just saying like, this is where I'm from, and you know, I love this place. And right. the reason I love this place is because of the people in it. I mean, you think Alby Square Mall would have meant anything except for like the people you hung out with and the fun times you had just cutting up in the freaking mall? Right. No. And some of the rawness of Brooklyn, like you know, people think is like, oh, we want to return to the bad old days. No, it's that. This, this you want to return to the community type days. Yes. You know, because in this moment we're in right now, um, the most exciting thing, um, if you can say anything like that about this particular pandemic, is that mutual aid has become more important than ever. And that because we're not really the, getting it. You know, we're right. not getting it from where we should be getting it, you know. Right. And that is what we were going through then. You right. know what I'm saying? That's right. we weren't. We were kind of left to our own devices. I mean, you know, of course, you got you got police, you got you you got all the things, right? Um, you got you know disenfranchisement by the government, all of that. And because we were kind of left to our own devices, you know, um, we were able to come up with things, you right? Know, with, because we were able to think creatively. Nobody was making anything for us and packaging anything for us. And, and no, New York um, was a, an easier place to live, even if in some ways it was a little more dangerous to rob, but it also right. was more affordable, you know. Right, it was more affordable. Um, you know, it, you had generations here by that point. Um, right. And, you know, then there were constantly, there were people from the diaspora coming in and adding to the culture. Right. Um, and so, because when we all, when we got here, you know, we, were, we all became Black despite our rubbing up against each other in certain ways, we all became black when we got here. Um, and so contributed to this um, totality of what we call, you know, black culture. Um, and there was something very, it was just a, it was a chocolate city. It was just a very black place. And it was like, you know, it's kind of like what happened in DC, what happened in New Orleans, like, it just was that kind of place where you could just be black and walk around and nobody was looking at you funny. Um, and you felt like you belonged somewhere, you know? Right. Um, and you didn't have to impress anybody else except for the people you went to school with because, you know, by then we were having like the um, des designer wear wars. Um, <laughs> thank God, I, you know, I wore a uniform most of the 
um, elementary school and high school. Um, so it was a little bit more minimized for me, but we still had them, you know, we still had the designer, you know, wars. Um, my mom was not into any of those things. So that's <laughs> not what was happening. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it's just you went to you went to school with people who looked like you, and you got on the train, and the people looked like you, and you went to your building, and people looked like you, and it felt safe. Right, right. It felt safe. Felt safe to um, be yourself as opposed to being right, judged. You know. Right. Yeah, it felt safe. I mean, you know, sometimes stuff was popping off at school, but that's a whole other thing. School is is crazy, no matter where you go. Right, um, right. But but you know, you were just you walked around, and it was like. I don't want to say it's like Africa, but it's kind of like, you know, it would be like, or like, you know, someplace in Africa or someplace, you know, down in the Caribbean, like you just walked around and it was like, you're you. And this was the only, you know, you weren't really seeing yourself on TV, except for Cosby show in different world. Um, but, you know, you just kind of, you felt, you felt safe, like you could be there, you know? Right. Well, it felt safe to be yourself because... In a society, as you said, that kind of flattens you. You yeah. can kind of see it within your own neighborhood that it's much more richer than is being portrayed in the real world. Right. And, you know, you know, when you jump forward to now um, and, you know, we go, my sister and my cousin and I, we go around, we're like, oh, you know, these people are looking at us funny in our own neighborhoods. Um, and it's not a nice feeling for sure. It's definitely an unsafe feeling. Um, but there's a part of me that kind of hopes that from this like tremendous amount of loss and horror, and I can't, you know, I say horror because I lost quite a number of people in one week. Um, yeah. Let's, let's talk, let's, yeah. let's, 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 let's fast forward here for a minute. Cause, yeah. uh, I didn't even realize that, you know, I know we've been talking about, uh, doing this for a while because we've kind of sort of, uh, bonded a little bit more through social media just through the stupidity of facebook and <laughs> different personalities that you know right. you deal with just trying to uh post some random political things and having sort of knuckleheads come out but uh yeah but before we get into that uh I, yeah i'm really really sorry about that i know you've lost a few family members through this yes i have um the most recent was my uncle carl who had just turned 70 in December, which is meaningless. Because, it's, still, um, it's still young, though. Yeah. I mean, I'm No, just, it's you still, know? He's not, he was not an old man. Like, when you think of, people think of 70, and I go like, well, there's American 70, and then there's like Grenadian 70. Grenadian 70 looks a lot different. You know, even though we, we do have some of the same illnesses um, from living in America after a time, you know, the, the people in my family are like, I mean, they partied more than I ever could. You know, they go, <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. They I'm sure. Partied. No, that's why I'm laughing. I'm sure you're absolutely. They, I mean, they go partying and dancing. They hanging out with each other all the time. They throwing parties on the weekend. They going to Carabana in Toronto. They going down to Grenada for Carnival. Like, you know, they going to the parade. They going to Juve. Like, they partying for days. Like, that's you know, that's the kind of people they are. And even if they have the comorbid conditions, you know, I have to say this. That those comorbid conditions weren't going to kill them. Like it weren't. It right. wasn't going to kill them. Right. You know what I mean. Um. And the whole process has kind of, kind of had me like shift, um, in a lot of ways. Like you know, I 
I thank the doctors that had the care and concern, but you know, at the same time, like I'm looking at all the things that are happening around us and realize like, you know, no matter, it's really hard to get good care if you're black. Yeah, no, that America. that's a real thing that actually, um, and it took a minute for even to get these stats out, but just in the last, you know, I think even in the last week or two, you know, you have people that have been demanding more and more to, uh, to get the actual stats of race, et cetera, because it is affecting the black community on a much bigger percentage and the native population right. too. Yep. You yep. know, it's... which then kind of goes back to, you know, how America's black people, sense. yeah, how black <laughs> people are treated. And I think there was even an article I saw, uh, today or yesterday about someone in Detroit being turned away from three different emergency units yep. and then dying and it's just like you'd feel like if someone was rich and white that that wouldn't be the story you know nope and i was having back and forth you know discussions with people uh, people are using exceptions to prove a rule um but i let them know i said i don't need i don't need the statistics to tell me that we're gonna get lesser care um because that's what happens that's why you know, I well, many of us prefer to go to black doctors when we go. Um, and, you know, I had my own experience um, where uh, I was sick and I went to an urgent care and that doctor was a person of color um, and was very nice to me um, and very accommodating. We were both wearing masks. Um, you know, I got diagnosed with influenza B, which was shocking to me because I did get that flu shot. Um, and then when I started developing COVID-19 symptoms, I went back to that same urgent care and it was a white doctor and she had full PPE and she scolded me for being outside. She scolded me for coming to urgent care. Um, and then well, what do you do the, when you're sick? <laughs> and she did the same thing to a friend of mine. Wow. You know, um, and so you know, and I've had other experiences, but that one kind of laid it out for me. And it's just funny because I went to, um, I finally was able to get a test. Um, and I went to another doctor and that doctor was a person of color, not the same as mine. Um, and a very nice, calm individual and took care of me. Um, and I said, what if I was not a person who was, you know, I'm the type of person, if something is wrong with me, I need to know what it is. Like, I'm not going to be like, oh, let me just, no. I need to know what it is. Um, and, you know, I'm also a person who can advocate for myself because I've moved in certain spaces. You know, I've been privileged enough to move in certain spaces. And also because I have two very assertive parents. Um, so I learned by watching them. And not everybody's like that, though. Yeah, You know, that's true. Yeah. yeah, a friend, my friend went, he was treated badly. He didn't want to go get the test again. He didn't want to go someplace else, you know? Yeah, it um, kind of like it, it can kind of sour you and then it sort of pushes you out, which is I, I think the unfortunate thing is when you get treated badly, that's what they want. They want you to just like, just go away. Yeah, just go away. Like, it's like you're sick. You'll be fine. Go home. Well, no, because people have comorbid conditions in this neighborhood people might be exposed to higher viral loads because they are essential workers and health aides and nurses. Um, and so if they get sick, you know, the first message we get is don't go to the hospital. 
because people die in the hospital. <laughs> wow, um, that's twisted. Or, yeah, because you don't get taken care of. It's sort of yeah. a warped thing because if you were really sick, you shouldn't feel that way. You should feel like, okay, I'm sick. I'm going to go somewhere where I can be healed. But then if there's this sort of like backwards kind of feeling in your mind that, oh, but if they don't care about me, they're not going to take care of me. Right. It's sort of like so, just, there's almost like an internal discouraging in the first it place. It is discouraging. I mean, because, That's fucked you know, up. here you have the, you know, you have like, if your symptoms are not serious, don't leave your house. Who am I to determine if my symptoms are serious or not? So shortness of breath is a primary symptom. Right. That is scary enough that any other, under any other circumstance, you would go to the doctor. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So who am I to determine the severity of my symptoms? Well, that's why you're going to a freaking doctor, because you're not one. Right. <laughs> yeah. Know? So that is the thing. So I was trying to explain that, like, there wasn't a lot of testing happening here. Um, there was a lot of testing happening in Staten Island, and somebody posited that, well, that's where the, a lot of the cops and, like, the firefighters are. I said, the nurses, the MPA... And the central workers on Brooklyn and Queens, why do they have less testing sites than Staten Island? Right. Right. There's a reason for that. Of course. You know, we also have a much bigger population and also the population density here is outrageous. That's true. You know? Um, and so like at one point there were like several private testing sites in Manhattan. They just opened um a testing site, a public one, um, by Sears in uh, Flatbush, but you call and you're supposed to wait for them to call back and give you an appointment. By the way, we are a, a commuter neighborhood, but that testing site is drive up. Yeah, actually, so, somebody pointed that out. I saw that on Twitter a few days ago that there is actually, that's also kind of an aspect of being uh, sort of classist in a way because lots of right. people in New York do not have cars. Exactly. You know? So there, it's like if you don't have a car, you can't get tested. That's also kind of which is crazy. Messed I mean, up the because other, yeah, yeah. That's why the we have a subway system site with here. 60th and Bay Parkway. People over there are gonna have cars. Like, well, people in Flatbush, they're not gonna have cars. People in the adjacent neighborhoods, not gonna have cars. Yep. Now, yes, there are a lot of cars around here, but they don't necessarily belong to the people that need to get tested. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's just like the whole thing is like messed up and everybody wants to like cascade blame all the way up. And certainly um, it's been a management has been a challenge, but um, people also need to understand that there's very local things um, that need assessment. Um, we have, you know, we have council people, we have all these people um, that are supposed to be our advocates. Um, and it's, it, we have to hold those people accountable, but you know, be, the, before you're living the rat race and you're just like going to work and getting on a train. And when you come home, you're too exhausted to do anything else to pursue like your dreams or your passions or whatever, you know, advocating for yourself is the last thing that you want to do. You know, you, you want certain things to be like, when I go to the doctor, I should be treated. I shouldn't be hustled out after paying $75 copay um and told like scolded why why did i come there right. um you know and so when that's happening in all kinds of ways um it makes it hard to be a creative person it makes it hard to like rep life the way you used to because even though stuff was hard in the 80s and 90s 
somehow, some way, more of our free time belong to us. I don't know how to explain why. Well, it's because, like I said, there is an aspect of the affordability in New York where it becomes your sort of like work to live kind of thing as opposed to, okay, you work and then you enjoy life. And but if it's, uh, you know, kind of gets to the point where it's like, okay, I have to grind, grind, grind just to be able to survive, you know. And it uh, it starts to eat into other things you want to do necessarily. Right. Um, but yeah, and, uh, I, you know, not to get off this topic, uh, but uh, mm-hmm. I know that we were kind of been bonding the last, I don't know, year or two just through, like I said, social media. I don't know if you want to talk about just some of the issues you have had just posting sure. things because, again... And, and I've dealt with this too to a certain degree is, you know, you meet people in different scenes, party scenes, become friends mm-hmm. with them. And then, you know, as you kind of if you start end up using social media to kind of point out things going on in the world, random, you know, oppression, racism stuff, you use, you, you know, especially on Facebook, you know, people mm-hmm. seem to feel like, oh, OK, you've posted this. So you actually want some clap back or you want people to respond or be challenged when necessarily you don't necessarily want to be challenged or you don't right. want to hear people's ignorant opinions, but they kind of come out right. anyway. I, uh, you know, here's, that's my thing. I said, I will talk to anybody. Uh, this sounds really bad. I'll talk to anybody who's not stupid. And this is me. It's going to, I, that's the word I grew up with is stupid, whatever. When I say stupid, I mean somebody who's not willing to learn anything new. Right. Um, because, you know, I am, I can, I'm very stubborn and uh, I can be argumentative. Usually when I'm argumentative, it's because I, I can really back up what I'm saying. Um, and I can't, you know, social media is a terrible place for a person like me because I'm introverted and it just allows me to like say what is in my head half the time. Well, you know, because I'm, I'm measuring myself when I'm outside. Um, but at the same time, people send me messages all the time that say that they love what I say and like 99% of what I say. And you say like what other people are thinking or make people think about things in a different way. Um, and I've always kind of been like that, uh, because I would say it comes a lot from like really loving to read. I'll read anything, you know, um, I feel really blessed that, you know, my mom, um, had a teaching background and I had really great educators. Um, and so, you know, not only did I develop that skill, but, you know, it was something that I enjoyed. So when I say I read, I don't mean like, oh, I'm reading like, you know, I mean, I'm reading those too, but like, quote unquote, classic author, authors and blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm reading everything. I read romance novels, ridiculous amount of romance novels. And let me tell you something. You want to learn about American history? Read romance novels. They have to verify so much of that information. Um, and so I, I credit romance novels for getting me a history, um, (laughs) Regents 100. Um, but anyway, the point is I will read anything. I consume information. And the most important part about consuming information is being able to like parse through it, um, and form a critical analysis. And the problem that we have now today is that because of the nature of social media, um, even because of conditioning of like having TV accessible 24 seven, you know, 24 seven news channels, really? Um, What happens is that people, 
first of all, you can go to the news that affirms, reaffirms your point of view, right? And because everything is a soundbite and a pundit, pundit, you don't have the opportunity to form your own critical analysis about what is going on. Because no, we can't see everything that's going on in the world from our corner of it. However, we are born with something called common sense that will allow us to push through if we don't, if we don't fall for propaganda. And propaganda starts with cults of personality, you know? Um, and that's what a lot of news is. Well, yeah, I feel like a lot of a lot of, you know, uh, corporate slash mainstream news is propaganda because, again, mm-hmm. even like the same kind of news source that was saying, well, Brooklyn is scary and black people are scary, you know, it kind of flattens things, you yeah. know, and uh, it does that not just with, say, black people in Brooklyn, but just mm-hmm. around the world, whether it's, yep. you know, the way it's going to report on countries that you know, the U.S. deems as quote-unquote official enemies. Right, so official then, enemies and official official allies. Right, so then and, all all that stuff gets kind of, you know, very warped. In the, I mean, that's that's a, a lot of stuff of what I rail on on social media is just trying to just, you know, I don't know, for better or for worse, have people understand that these news, or, you know, just because they claim to be objective, it's usually right. the, the, the quote-unquote objective news sources are the ones that are the most slanted. Because if you, yeah. you know, there is no, you know, like as many people pointed out, objectivity is bullshit. There's always it's an angle. Relative, and, and, relative, and to claim that you're objective very, is just yeah. an aspect of propaganda, you know? Right. You're not objective, right. you know? Right. There is no objective yeah. news source. So I'd rather actually have media sources that are focused on human rights and anti-imperialism mm-hmm. then okay what is um, our billionaire backers one is i, I kind of look at it as like it's sort of like they're stenographers of either the state department or the people that own them you know well yeah and and more so these days than before it's very hard for um independent journalism to flourish in the way that you know television has fl- like television is great. There's been a lot of great TV shows, whatever. But the more TV we have, the more people have silos of information where they don't have to pay attention to any other kind of information because I have this right here, you know? And and when I was in college, I actually, um, so I'm a communications major um, and we did a lot of critical analysis of news sources. This was when Rush Limbaugh was coming, you know. Um, right, right. And so... Uh, so I had that opportunity, but what really, what would really be best for most people, I think, well, you know, too bad we've had, you know, years and years of watering down education is that instead of watching the news, first read the news, um, find out if it adheres to the principles of journalism, like the who, what, when, where, how, and why, um, and then find another reading of that story and somewhere in between you might find the actual truth you know we have we have critical thinking skills for a reason you know um and we should develop them because we we need them just as much as we need our instinctual um instinctual drives um you know we we need critical thinkers um to move this country forward you know because some stuff just doesn't make sense you know and 
what, what would be what would be some, what would be some examples of just even things you've been posting about recently or something in that vein of what so, doesn't what doesn't make sense to you so what some things that don't make sense to me um are the fact that our country is run by lawyers like literally run by lawyers most of the people that are in the highest echelons of government you know come from a law or business background this is not to diss any of my lawyer friends but you know law is designed for argument not necessarily for consensus right there has to be a winning side um and so we have a government that's made up of people who are designed to not come to consensus. Um, we have a government that's made up of people that, you know, are supposed to be representative, but, you know, they have, they certainly don't have the same life experiences as most of the people in this country. They make a yeah, lot more money. There's a disconnect. <laughs> yeah, a they disconnect. make a lot more money and they're older. Now, have there always been like people with money in our government? Yes. Um, but before... I think, and this is going to sound bad because I'm not pro-American imperialism, but I feel like um, in terms of like going into the service, um, which a lot of previous um, leaders have done, it what it gave people was kind of a sense of civic responsibility. Um, and so when that is removed, you know, and politics becomes a, a career as opposed to a calling, um, you have people that are doing their best to secure their position rather than move society and the culture forward. I mean, I, so, I yeah, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I think there's a lot of obviously brainwashing in the military yeah. and even people's conception of America in the first place. But, yeah, I do think you you come up with a good point there that uh, there's kind of like it does become more of like a career and. And less about, you know, is was there even a calling that you wanted to do this to improve the world as opposed to, right. um, you know, almost like I want to be president because I want to be the king, per se. Right. Well, I mean, you know, here's the thing. When I, you know, when I use the military service of, of previous um, presidents, that is just to say that there was an aspect of civil service um, and um, community that they got to experience, um, you know, I think the military is there's a lot of things I have to say about the military but um I'm gonna move on to this point of like being a part of something um well being in touch with your community you know as opposed to being a community which which you're saying like and again it's not a diss to you know yeah lawyers per se but there's an aspect that if you're sort of making a lot more money and all this stuff that there's this kind of aboveness and and thus it's like well, I'm smarter than you and I'm making all this money, so therefore, but there's not a, an actual connect with maybe when you're talking about public policy that, you know, basically is d- supposed to be designed to help people, though, you know, right. as you see in some of these bills, like even this latest kind of bailout, you know, I have friends that are part of small businesses that by the time they were supposed to get money, oh, the fund is run out. Ran out, Yeah. <laughs> And, and honestly, this is me saying that because of things like our government is run by lawyers and career politicians, everything has become so much more complicated than it need, ever needed to be. Um, 
it, it's become a, a Byzantine, Byzantine process. Um, like things that make sense, like why do we have military bases all around the world? We are not actively, quote unquote, at war um, with anyone. Um, and why can't some of that defense budget be redirected to um, current funds? Why do we have, um, why is there even a question of calling the things that the, the monies that we pay into government entitlements when they come back to us? Like every penny that the government spends comes from the people. Right. But still there's a back and forth about where the money should go and you know, do people deserve like you know, things like universal basic income and um, universal health care when it's literally our money? It's very literally our money um, that we've paid in year after year um, for our entire life. And suddenly, you know, it, that becomes a sticking point. And because we have these dumb sticking points, you know, on that stuff like money or the culture wars, which frustrate me to no end because... Um, that's not what the, the, like the government needs to mind its business about consult consenting adults or whatever adults do with their bodies. Um, and that's it period. But somehow this becomes important and we have governance. Well, it almost becomes on, like a, a bait yeah. and switch that you were talking about something like gay marriage while, you know, something that should be very obvious, like, you know, everyone should be able to have health care or housing or, you know, kind of basic human rights, that doesn't become the focus of the conversation no. anymore, you know? That's crazy. So it's kind I'm of like, like it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it becomes like a game, you know? Yeah. Lots and we of just games. are stuck on it. And, and the thing is that there two, we have, we have a part, two parties, two active parties, one that uses the thing as like a, you know, like a, What's the best way to put it? Uses it as like a, a football, right? And then the other party um, uses it as like a carrot to dangle to the constituency. So the other one uses it as a football um, to kind of hold up the process, right? I've got the ball. And then the other party uses it as like, if you don't vote for us, then, you know, then we, you know, this carrot will get taken away. I'm sorry, my metaphors are really mixing. That. <laughs> um, no, it's all that, good. It's all good. You know, it's basically, you know, one party uses the thing to say um, we're going to stick it to everybody, right? Um, especially those people who aren't like you. And then another party uses it to say, well, if you don't vote for us, then this other party's going to stick it to you. And I'm just like, what do you have to offer? Yeah, that, like, well, that's offer, that's you know? that's the thing that, you know, I think, you know, you're kind of seeing it in this current uh, election process is that, you know, if you're not standing for every, anything and what you keep telling people as your selling point is, well, have you seen the other guy? That doesn't right. really say anything about what you're offering, you know? And, and essentially, I think that's... That's, you know, the problem with neoliberalism. They don't stand for anything. It's just literally, it's kind of like, a, I call it fascist light. It's just, a, right. you know, it's still not really for people. It's just that, yeah, fascist, full-on fascism is worse, but, you know. But that's what the, pro that's what the, you know, this is what our culture is built upon. I mean, that's why, 
you know, we need to re- we need to build a whole new culture. Our culture is built upon um, it's built upon smoke and mirrors. It's built upon like empty, non-nutritious, um, unsubstantive things. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of like vapid statements and right. you know even vapid gestures that you know you have somebody like Biden where it's like okay to appeal to you know, the sort of more left end of the party, instead of giving you Medicaid for all, we'll just lower it from 65 to 60. And it's like, okay, great. All you have to do is live your life and have nothing bad happen to you until you're 60. Right. I mean, it's it's kind of twisted, like all these, you know, like especially I think, again, with the whole COVID thing is that, mm-hmm. you know, you have people saying, okay, yeah, people shouldn't pay for covid related testing or issues but but, but yeah but so but cancer was fine and insulin right. at three hundred dollars is, is like fine and number all this one killer you know yeah, like heart just... disease number one killer in america and and in fact i was in a i was uh, at a webinar about the disparities of, that covid um is exacerbating in the south and it came back to this kind of like of course, people have to advocate for like dollars and things like that, but it, it it always comes back to this DIY thing, you know, like the way that I was talking about what was going on in the 80s and the 90s. Um, and quite frankly, um, until Americans have, until America as a country understands that you're only as good as your weakest or most exploited person, um, that's that's how good you are. That's that's that is the best that you can do. Like that's how you think about it. Like our best is kids in cages um, and people um, not resuscitated because you know maybe they you know maybe they need a vent for somebody else or um, you know their. I mean, I think what's kind of sad is why why do we get to that point? You know. Like, why have we gotten to that point that we have to make those kind of triage type decisions? You know, it's just kind of terrible. Yeah. It's like it. that's also, you know, to me, that's like a factor of uh, when you look at some of these other countries that did do a lot of testing. And, and you know, I mean, now, and now currently, you know, I almost if people have been making a joke on Twitter that you know calling them instead of all lives matter no lives matter because you have all these people like pushing to be like we want to start working again we want everything to open again it's just it seems like insanely naive you know well you know but the thing is like what what we have to realize is that there we've there have been aspects if not all of american people but from the aspects of america that have been cannon fodder this whole time. And so it's just a natural progression of that. You know, um, when the country was founded, uh, native people were considered cannon fodder, you know, for this new expansive um, world. Um, You know, when this country needed labor, um, Africans were considered cannon fodder. You know, they were the bodies on which the country was built. and when they were importing lots of them, they were quite expendable. Um, and when they were breeding them, um, certainly less expendable, but you know, still, um, you know, certainly 
to be exploited, misused, and abused. So it starts from the very beginning. Um, when you start looking at the Industrial Revolution um, and what the factories were like here, people were considered cannon fodder. You know, okay, you know, there's there's fires and and poor working conditions and and hands getting cut off and you know kids working and 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 you know um, pollution and so on and so forth. Um, so there's always been an aspect or more than one um, aspect of um, the people that has been considered expandable cannon fodder. Um, and eventually it becomes a bigger and bigger group, particularly as wealth is consolidated, um, that, you know, that they're expendable. Because you know what? Humans make more humans. <laughs> they make more humans. Yeah, um, but it's also like, yeah, it's a, it's a certain look in the world of like how, you know, just the, the wealth transfer has gone on and you have someone like, Jeff Bezos, I think, just in the news, buying yet another $16 million apartment to add to his other two apartments while people working at Amazon during these conditions can't even have sick leave or someone who is complaining about that and possibly wanting to start a union gets fired, you know, and it's it's it is it's just it's a it's you know, in a certain level, it's like maybe the circumstances haven't changed, but the mentality hasn't, you know. I think, you know, certainly, and, and here's the thing, there's always been this moment, um, like America has always gone through this. Um, it's a matter of when are people fed up enough to do something about it. Right. And then what happens after that is that everybody forgot, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, everybody forgot and then it happens again. Um, well, I think, I think, I think if you, yeah. you, you have some progress and then you have things that are trying to kind of like, you know, again, those kind of games that slowly try to unravel all that, you know, like, you right. might, you know, there was a time when unions were very strong and then you have, you know, again, just more kind of conservative elements and not even necessarily Republicans, mm -hmm. you know, even I think what's been going on with the decades between these kind of corporate Democrats or neoliberals and the GOP is it's almost like a one two punch, you know, right. none of them are really for the people. And so the lesser of two evils kind of like drives us into worse and worse choices and yeah, worse and worse and on. worse and worse scenarios, you know? Right. And here, the thing for me though, and this goes back to me talking about things that don't make any sense. If I were a person of some considerable means, um, my first thought would be, would not be, you know, how can I acquire more means? To me, a normal person um, doesn't think like, I need to buy another boat or I need to buy an island. You know, a normal person doesn't think that. Um, and so we have to look at the parameters of what we consider valuable in this nation, because to me, a valuable society is one that respects and takes care of and sees to the development of all of its citizens because I believe a rising tide lifts all the boats. Um, but that's not necessarily what we're seeing. Um, and to me, that is, that, that's not normal, a normal thought process. No, it's kind, of, it's kind it's, of sociopathic. It's normalized, <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's almost like, like wealth, wealth hoarding, you know? It's like it, it yeah. becomes like this whole 
almost like you have people that are almost trying to one up each other in some sort of like in their own little world where it it starts to be just yeah it starts to be absolutely ridiculous and on a certain level when i say sociopath it's because they don't really care if people die like they don't care right. if people die because they don't have health insurance or they don't even have basic protection during a pandemic and there's yeah there is kind of like a serious serious disconnect there that why right. you know if you have enough money for you know, your great, 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 great grandchildren to go to the most expensive university ever or whatever, right. you know, and have everything at their disposal. It's it's kind of warped, you know, it is warped. I it's just very think, warped. You know, yeah. And I and the thing is that I would say that that is a reflection of what we've put on as values. Right. Um, you know, like I said to somebody, I said, you know, we got this rugged American individualism, which you know, has actually led to the destruction of cultures. Um, it has led to the um, destruction of the communal spirit because we are a communal and social species. Um, we are not meant to function in silos and alone. Um, we're meant to build together. And so it's become this hyper individualized culture um, that in the face of something like what we're going through right now, um, is totally inadequate to deal with. Yeah. Um, we don't have the we don't have the social skills. We have all the other things. We don't have the social skills necessarily to do this um, together. And and I find that very sad because you know just going back to what I was talking about, like you know growing up and and um, what that's certainly what um, what it was like here in my childhood there was a communal spirit, you know? Um, and I think that spirit comes naturally to people, um, but it's kind of been, for lack of a better word, bred out of our culture um, because we have rewarded um, people of no substance with tremendous amount of attention and power and influence. Um, and this is not to say, and I feel sorry for some of those people, for sure, um, because I believe to have a rich inner, you know, a rich inner life is worth more than anything else to me. But we have certainly, as a culture, rewarded the people of least substance over and over and over again. Um, and that's because we have been conditioned to like shiny objects, whatever package it comes in. Um you know, we've been. Well, I think it's. I, yeah, I think it's been. It's been sold to us. You know. Right, and um, it's reflected in a lot of aspects of, you know, how, how, what we send out into the world. Um, we've kind of sent out. We sent out a lot of. <laughs> uh, for lack of a, we sent out a lot of bullshit um, as the American America's exports. <laughs> yeah, we definitely export bullshit. Well, not to completely end on that note, though, we're uh, mm -hmm. we're kind of running out of time in terms of, uh, oh. yeah, any other kind of uh, thoughts or whatever before we uh, wrap everything up here? Sure. I'll, you know, I just want people to know that, like, what's in your head is not necessarily true and that, like, make sure you're talking to other people during this time. That's the only way we're going to get through all of this. Um, and also that music does solve everything it really does yeah music is good believer. music is good <laughs> i mean i'm biased because yeah. uh 
you know, but yes, <laughs> yes. music is good. But anyways, <laughs> Colleen, it was really nice talking to you. And, uh, thank you. Thanks for all your, your thoughts and uh, thanks for the music. Yeah, thank you. Have a good one. To hear Colleen Vincent's exclusive Stark Reality playlist, check out episode 14 of Stark Reality on Mixcloud or live and direct on jasoncharles.net podcast network music shows. You've been listening to Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.